1: What's happening, people? And what you know good? We'd like to thank you for listening and spending your time with us. This is Pulling Back the Curtain Podcast, the most provocative, the most exciting, the baddest, baddest podcast in the land. We come with the dopest topics, hitting with the rawest opinion while giving you the straight-up facts. No fake news here. I'm Jules. Oppressed. we are giving sight to the blind, ladies and gentlemen. People, what's happening? What up with it? What you know good and what it do? We'd like to thank you for tuning in and spending your time with us. You're listening to Pulling Back the Curtain podcast, the most provocative, the most entertaining, the baddest podcast in the land. We're hitting you with the dopest topics, the rawest opinion, while giving you straight up facts. That's right. No fake news here. I'm Jules St. James.
0: i Press. I'm Novik.
1: We're giving sight to the blind today, ladies and gentlemen. On today's pod, we'll be Pulling Back the Curtain on 2009 murder of NFL legend Steve McNair. And for our audience, this episode will be part one of this Pulling Back the, Cop, the Curtain podcast true crime series. Fellas, what's poppin'?
0: Jules, what's good? Novak, how you doing, brother?
2: It's doing pretty good. Hey. Doing pretty good. Just, uh, just gliding, trying to, trying to enjoy the day, uh, get together with you guys to get this episode out.
0: Yes, sir, man. Yes, sir, man. I I still can't believe it's been. Uh, we're coming up on the 11 year anniversary of uh Steve McNair's passing. Time flies.
1: Man.
2: Definitely.
1: Man, it doesn't wait. It doesn't wait, boy. I tell you. No, it His doesn't. Voices. Man, if you don't stop and look
0: around, you'll you'll miss it. It's <laughs> not the damn truth. Well, man, well. Man. Well let's let's get into it, man. So on this uh on this special uh series, man, we're gonna we're gonna pull back the curtain on uh, the life of Steve McNair. Uh we're gonna talk about the circumstances surrounding his uh, his death, and we're gonna do just a quick uh snapshot on the next episode uh about the investigation and the different things that went into it. But without further ado, fellas, let's get into it. Let's talk about Steve McNair and his life.
1: Man, you know, Steve McNair was born February 14, seventy three. What way the to- Bring in the Valentine Day present. Spend the Valentine with bringing in the baby. Uh, his parents was uh Selma and Lucille, not, both not females. One Selma is actually a man's name. That was his father, uh, born in Mount Olive, Mississippi. You know Steve had four siblings. He had brothers, four brothers: Fred, Jason, Mike, and Tim. Uh, grew up playing sports, and I mean anybody who have siblings is it, it's fun. I know you are always fighting and stuff like that, but uh, four brothers, man. You know they had, you know they had fun. So high school, he went to Mata Olive High from '87 to '90. All around athlete, he played football, baseball, basketball, track. He Even I know people know him as a, a quarterback, but he was a bad man on the, on the defensive side. He was free safety. Uh, one year in 1990, he had 15 interceptions. I mean, man, that's I mean, 15 interceptions in one season. That's man. That's, 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 amazing. But, um, I mean, what else can you say about that? He got his nickname in high school, Air McNair, you know, so I don't know what else to say about that, man. I mean, dude was just, dude was just a man. He was just a man. All, you know, all in high school and stuff. So, so man, i to my hat off to him. Yeah, he,
2: yeah, he was, he was phenomenal pretty much. Um, you know, he, he chose uh, Alcorn State, you know, for college. Uh, he went there after, you know, he, he looked at some much bigger programs like Florida State, Florida, and he could he, went, he didn't want to go there because they didn't want to allow him to play quarterback. And he was like, if I can't play quarterback, then this isn't the right fit for me. So he chose Alcorn State. He is considered to be the, the greatest player ever to come out of Alcorn State. Uh, he was there for four years, which is – and today's world is, like, rare, you know, for athletes to stay anywhere in college for greater than three years. I mean, so he did four years there. I mean, he came on the scene in 91. You know, he had some, he had some of the best numbers of any freshman we ever seen play the game of football at the college level. He had 24 touchdowns the first year uh, through the air. You know, he had six on the ground. They went seven, two, and one. And, you know, he pretty much won Swack Offensive Player of the Year and he won freshman year uh, awards as well uh he he had a, he had a great freshman campaign you know then he followed up with that sophomore campaign and he went off again you know sophomore year you know they uh they came back you know they they, they won their, they won another swag championship uh he won seven and four they went undefeated in the swag you know he had 29 touchdowns that year uh, he rushed for 516 yards and he scored, he scored another ten on the ground. So he had a, he had, he had a great time that sophomore year. Then the junior year came, pretty much. And the talks of, the talks of Heisman started popping up everywhere because he became a household name at that point. He became like, uh, I mean, you know, once once Sports Illustrated latched on to him, discovered there's something special here. It just went like, man, you know, he went from zero to 60 in terms of uh, marketability and also uh, being re- more recognizable as an athlete out there. That junior year, he came, you know, that junior year, basically, which I, I call it the prelude to the, to the year where he just shit on people. <laughs> I mean, he was just warming up. Junior year, you know, he had 22 touchdowns that year in the air. You know, he had eight touchdowns on the ground. Of course, he won a SWAG player, player, you know, he won SWAC Player of the Week like five times that year, and then he also won SWAC Offensive Player of the Year, and he was first team SWAC. You know, he just had an outstanding year, but he almost didn't return for the senior year because of the financial issues at home, and there was big concerns over, uh, you know, if it would make more sense for him to go to the NFL. But they were predicting that he would go like the the mid the, the mid first round, to early second round. And I think he want, he had something to prove. So he returned for his senior year, totally obliterated every NCAA record out there that year. I mean that that senior year. I mean you're talking about he had 47 touchdowns that senior year in the air. You know he got a thousand yards on the ground. This is a quarterback now. Quarterbacks, you know, you know quarterbacks are more mobile these days. You look at uh, the Lamar Jacksons of the world. You look at the Mahomes of the world. You look at Michael Vick did for the game. This guy got a thousand yards on the ground, you know, during an era where quarterbacks weren't mobile. You know, they weren't as mobile as they are today. You know, uh he finished third in Heisman vote that year, should have won the Heisman. You know, they say Rashawn Salam was, was a better player, which I totally disagree with. You know, even even being a Chicagoan and knowing that the Bears drafted Salam, you know, that didn't work out for us. I mean Manero would have been a <laughs> would have been a better pick. but once yeah. again, you know, our Bears don't pick, you know, certain quarterbacks. You know, I'm not about to beat the dead horse right now, but that guy could have been our franchise quarterback for years to come if we had to look that direction.
1: Yeah,
0: we uh, missed out.
2: Oh, big time. <laughs> big time. Take a oh, they,
0: they, they should have traded up.
2: Should have traded up. I totally agree. I mean, you know, there was <laughs> should enough... trade
1: up on, uh, this was that, that would have been a good one to trade up in, huh?
2: <laughs> well, we had enough bums on the team to make one player. You know, that's what I always look at. It. If you trade all your bums, you get one solid player. We had enough around us, enough people with names that weren't doing anything on the Bears during that time period. We could have, we could have got McNair for the right price because you know Houston drafted him, and um, you know he started his career there. But yeah, he had a awesome collegiate career.
0: No, he, he he definitely did. And one thing I wanted to call out on that is, uh, we and we talked about this uh, on the phone uh, yesterday. We were talking about uh, the SI cover that McNair was on and the fact that you know they brought attention to him, uh, considering that he was an HBCU athlete and wasn't on ESPN, wasn't on ABC. So that was one of the things that basically got McNair uh, in the spotlight a little bit. And I do agree with you, man. He, that third place finish, I think, was just more of the fact that Colorado and Penn State, those games are on TV every week, right? And no one got to see McNair and also, I don't think people respected the, the, uh, the level of competition in that SWAT conference, which is, which is unfortunate because uh, as I'm going to get into here in a second, Steve McNair is a pro quarterback. I mean, shit. I mean, he had a way better career than both Salam and Kajana Carter. So. That was hard to do, though. <laughs> <laughs> but, I will say this, but I will say this. Kajana Carter, he was sick, man, at Penn State. But those Penn State running backs have always been cursed.
2: Yeah, I mean, the Nike curse. I mean, he was on posters everywhere around cities. I remember traveling somewhere outside of Chicago so I could join the Carter poster, but he must be nice. (laughs) So, you know, uh, I mean, you know, his NFL career is a different story.
0: Yep. So with that being said, and like you brought up, uh, McNair, he was drafted by the the Oilers. Uh, He went third overall in the 95 draft. Uh, The thing – that I want our audience to remember when it comes to the NFL during those times is quarterbacks, they had to wait their turn. So McNair didn't play right away. He actually was on the bench for a couple of years, just learning the game and learning the craft. You know, you'll see in today's NFL where these guys, if they're drafted a top five pick more than likely, they're going to throw that person out there uh, to basically just learn the game unless it's Patrick Mahomes, who actually sat out a year and learned under Alex Smith. But generally, uh, quarterbacks are basically just getting thrown on the field and learn, you know, know, by fire. But in McNair's situation, he had time to learn. He had uh, time to adjust to the pro game. So there was that two-year window of time when uh, the Oilers moved to Tennessee. So in their first season in Tennessee in 97, McNair took over as the starting quarterback. And in that first season, he had over – 3,300 yards of total offense. Uh, What's really good about those numbers is the fact that McNair rushed for almost 700 yards. So Novak brought up about uh, the fact that when McNair was in college, he had that dual threat aspect to his game. And we didn't see that at the time uh, with with quarterbacks. Now it's very common in today's game with your Lamar Jackson's and your Cam Newton's and, and guys that have that type of athleticism to throw and also to move out of the pocket. But with McNair, That first season, he averaged almost seven yards per carry. So if you think about that in the way that the NFL game was back then, you have a quarterback that you could basically depend on to get seven yards every time he touches the ball just from running it. That's almost a first down. So you could see how that impact he had not only on that Houston uh, Oilers-Tennessee Titans uh, offense was great, But it also changed the game, and it also probably opened the eyes up for a lot of GMs around the league to say, hey, maybe we should look at these kind of quarterbacks and and give them a shot. So I think McNair definitely was very vital in just some of the the quarterbacks that we see coming down the pipes later on uh, in the NFL. The biggest thing that uh, NFL teammates have said about McNair is the fact that his toughness was second to none, and that he had a workmanlike approach to the game. He was always someone that they could depend upon. So McNair always had really solid numbers. He always averaged anywhere between 3,000 to 3,300 yards uh, throwing the ball. But he also had that component of being a mobile quarterback and averaging six to seven yards a carry. The MVP season of 2003 is probably the year that a lot of sports fans think about when they think of a McNair because he played most of that, that season per. And that just is a testament of who he was. A lot of his teammates said he wouldn't even practice at all during the week, and they don't know how he got out there to perform and play in the actual game. He actually played at a high level. So I just think of when you think of a Steve McNair, you have to think of him as just that warrior who did everything that it took to perform and also be there for his teammates. And I do remember uh, in 2004, he played in a game with a bruised or a cracked sternum. I can't remember the exact injury designation, uh, but I just know that that injury – would have basically knocked out any other quarterback out of the game. I mean, and this guy basically got back in the game and, and basically probably got hit again. And, and I think he, they say he later re injured the injury two additional times. Uh, but McNair was a warrior, didn't win a Super Bowl, almost did. You guys probably remember the the game that the Titans had against the Rams where they came up a yard short. Uh, that was a game where McNair almost uh, let them back. I mean, he was very – notorious for his fourth quarter comebacks and his, uh, his heroics. But, man, when I, when I think of Steve McNair, I think of just a guy that he didn't put up the, those video game-type numbers in the league, but he was always dependable. He was always ready to play. Um, and also, too, he had a couple seasons there in Baltimore where, you know, he was on that team as more of a veteran-type presence, uh, and he showed those guys how to play in the NFL. He showed, he showed them a little bit about professionalism, and things of that nature, so, I mean, McNair's mm-hmm. NFL career was, was really good, you know, he played in the league for for 17 years, so, yeah, I mean, I really loved watching him, as you know, as a kid, and just kind of seeing his approach to, to playing in the league.
1: Man, you're talking about three-time pro bowl, like you said, 2003 MVP, over, threw over 3,100, you know, 3,100 yards, and stuff like that, and Three thousand with three thousand Russian man, like you said, man. This dude here was the was the real deal. Played, hurt, wouldn't. You, know, you, you brought about it. You guys talked about it earlier. How these quarterbacks nowadays to get a little little soreness, little stiffness, they ain't out there playing, man. He said, uh, like like you talked about, prayers. I mean, crack a uh, chest, crack your chest, I mean, Come on, man, <laughs> and still play.
0: Yeah. yeah, that's that's insane, isn't it? <laughs> Ooh,
1: we, man. You know what? Also, you, you know, he's a, a Titan ring of honor. I mean, this dude uh, Steven, a bad man. A bad man. Man. Dude. You uh, can't say nothing else about it. I mean, I'm here to talk about him being a pops and, and and husband stuff right quick. So, so check this out. He met his wife, Michelle, before they get before they get married. Let me bring it bring you up to speak the origin of it. You know, they both had class together at, at uh, at, at uh, At the college at Alcorn State, they was taking anatomy. Matter of fact, Steve McNair was in anatomy class. Okay, I like to see him. I like to see his answers, his 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 grade out of there. So uh, uh, Michelle used uh, talked about how he used to mess with her. He he sat behind her, stared at her, you know, make gestures, stick his feet out to to mess with, to get her attention and stuff like that. But at the time, she didn't know who Steve McNair was. But also, she had a boyfriend, so that kind of Kind of complicates things a little bit, but Steve was persistent. They end up, you know, they end up kicking it, started going together. You know, she wasn't a big sports fanatic. She really didn't watch sports. Uh, hell, she almost, she said, she almost didn't even go to that school. But you know, you know, hey, such is life. So, point out things work out that way. Uh, in '97, they get married, and to come after. Um, after after marriage is, is 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 baby carriage. So they had two kids. Um, Steve was Steve was good father. Good father. Nothing he wouldn't do for the kids, or, um go to their games and stuff when he can. I know his his, you know, being a professional athlete, his time is, you know, his busy and stuff like that. But whenever he can, he make way to spend time with his boys. They always have family night and stuff like that. Um it's just a just a regular dad. You know, sometimes I know you know, we come home with from a long days of work, we we stopped and um and, and 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 instead of going to sleep, we go the extra mile to, to play with our kids and stuff and 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 doing things with the wife and stuff like that to you know, to have, you know, good time, and a good family uh quality time. So, so with that, man, he yeah, he was good, man. It's you know.
2: Yeah. One, you know, one of the things to touch upon is one, one touch upon, you know, in there's life at the NFL. I mean, probably the most difficult time period for any professional athlete because he has to learn how to uh, basically reintegrate himself back into society, you know, from being an athlete and to being an everyday Joe at this point. So what he did is he kind of, you know, he kind of lived between his farm in Mississippi and he started a business in uh, in Tennessee and in, in, in Nashville area. He started a great Iron Nine, which was a restaurant. So he was working between those two those two locations. Um, you know, still a big part. You know, still played a big part in his uh, his family's life. You know, his kids' life. He uh, he was he was doing a lot of things in the community. Like he opened that restaurant to try to provide you know opportunities for you know kids and you know kids in that area that might need food or kids that needed employment. He also hired a lot of the townspeople in that area, in the Nashville area, to work with Iron 9. He built a lot of relationships in the community. You know, some of those relationships are great. Um, he, you know, he just was he just was one of those people that, even though he's from Mississippi, he still was a very big part of what, you know, what was going on in the Nashville scene. He was a very big player in the area. And I think he was also moving towards uh, more businesses and more relationships with the community, you know, prior to, uh, you know, his situation. But uh other than that, I mean when there was, when there was a great guy in terms of like you know, being a family guy, you know, he was big in the community and everybody pretty much enjoyed being around him.
1: And you know that you know that gridiron, the gridiron iron man, catfish and catfish and burger, they ain't a bad concept there. Catfish and burgers. I
0: like both. One of the things, too, that you brought up, and and it was really important, Novak, was just some of the the things that these athletes go through when they leave the game. And so Eddie George, I think in an interview, he actually talked about the fact that he thinks that McNair may have been struggling to fill a void in his life after retiring from football. And that's something that people don't really talk about a lot when it comes to these athletes and just how they're able to basically go on to that next stage in their life.
2: Right, and you, know, you also, you know, this is before we started, you know, checking for concussions and everything else because you never know exactly where his head was at, how many, how many concussions he had, you know, what neck and injuries out there, what painkillers he might have been taking. So, there, you know, there's a lot of uh, things that could have been – went wrong in that situation after football.
0: No, you're exactly right about that, man. Um, the thing that I was going to say, you know, on this is, you know, Steve McNair as a, as a, as a football player, he was a warrior, you know, he, his mother, you know, she always, you know, commented on how he changed the trajectory of their whole family's lives, you know, with just being the NFL and being able to give back to them. He bought her like a big, you know, farm, you know, area place for her, you know, to enjoy her, her life. And just to thank her for, you know, all the things that, you know, he, you know, she did for him, you know, growing up and so forth, you know, so, The tragedy of this situation is the fact that, you know, on July 4th, uh, 2009, you know, there's two bodies that were discovered in a a Nashville condo. Um, And, you know, there's a lot of stuff there that we can can hit on with that.
1: Well, you know, uh, so I'm going to take it. So I'm going to take it back. He was leaving the crib. He was saying goodbyes to his boys and his wife uh, around 11 o'clock at night, July 3rd. He was about to hang out with a couple of friends at the Bar Loser on, on, on Division Street. Uh, he told his kids he'll be back. Kissed him goodnight. Told his wife he loved them and stuff. And hung out. Well, he was hanging out. And he had another spot. He had a condo that he was going to. So around 1230-ish, I want to say, he was heading to that spot. And he was meeting cause, uh, Kazima. Uh, you know, little friend, little, you know, little friend that he know. So he's meeting Kazima. He texted her around 1230, Say he's on his way. He ended up, didn't make it there till about an hour later, where, you know, uh, unfortunately, that'll be the last time anybody would, would hear from, from um, Steve McNair. Um, so we can get into, so we can get into, you know, what, the next thing on it. But after that, we didn't get, we didn't know what happened after that until his his partners, Wayne and Robert, got get on the scene that next, that uh, 12 around 12 o'clock that next, uh, that afternoon. Yeah, so, what it was,
2: is, so what happened here is Wayne Neely, you know, who basically is a local, like, uh, he's like a sports, like a memorabilia guy in the area. He had like a, an infatuation with athletes. You know, he loved being around athletes. He loved being, um, you know, just out there and about. And, you know, he had a lot of relationships with like the Vince Young's in that area. He had a lot of people that he was connected to. And um, he formed a relationship with Manera and they basically had this condo they rented together. And, you know, it was a place like, cause Manera was only in town, you know, every so often. He wasn't there a lot and he didn't need a, he didn't need a full-time place. So what happened is, uh, Wayne McNally uh, basically discovered the two bodies, you know, uh, you know he, he discovered the two bodies pretty much of uh, you know, a, you know, a, a McNair pretty much and of uh, a Kazemi, you know, pretty much in the apartment, the condo. And what he did is he saw it and, you know, in most cases, you know, <laughs> he, uh, you know, he saw the bodies. He made a call out to uh, Gaddy, who was an ex-teammate of uh, McNair's of Alcorn State. And he explained to him what he saw. And you know, that situation was uh was really interesting because, you know, I, I personally would have called it law enforcement first. <laughs> but uh, you know, it's just what it is. And so that's what happened there. I mean the relationships of those two guys is very interesting. And that's something we're gonna to touch upon much much later in this podcast.
0: Yeah, so the, the thing here with this situation here is as uh, Novak mentioned, uh, you had Neely, who basically was registered as the co-owner of this condominium property, right. and so Neely had a key to get in, and so he dropped by the uh, the condo because he noticed that McNair's car was outside, and so you know it seemed like these guys were you know friendly enough with each other enough that. You know, he could just pop in like that. Now, I don't have too many people that I, that I would let just pop up at the crib like that. But, you know, I don't know that relationship. But, however, Neely said he goes and enters into the condo. He goes in the refrigerator and grabs a beer. I mean, the guy is obviously very comfortable with being in there. <laughs> and from there, he looks over and he's a, he observes two bodies on the couch. So from that standpoint, from where he was at, he said he thought that the people were asleep. He didn't know who they were just according to what, you know, he's said in multiple interviews. So what he does is he goes closer to where he sees the people and he notices that there's blood. So from there, as Novak mentioned, instead of him calling law enforcement, what Neely did is he started calling up different people. He called Steve McNair first and uh, the police uh, reports, they showed uh, his records And it shows that, yeah, he did call Steve and he even texted Steve and said it was an emergency and he needed him to call him. He then followed that up by calling Steve's uh, assistant. So Steve's assistant didn't answer. So then Neely called uh, Steve McNair's friend, Gaddy. And so Gaddy is a a former teammate of uh, Steve McNair's from college. And they were also business partners in that Gridiron 9 that uh, Novak mentioned earlier in the episode. So from this standpoint now, You have a situation here where Neely and Gaddy are now discussing what uh, Neely saw in that apartment with the two bodies. So what then happens now is Gaddy lets Neely know, hey, I'm going to stop over there and see what's going on. At this point, still no one has contacted the police. So we have a situation now where Gaddy and Neely now go back to the condo. And at this point, it's when they identify that the bodies belong to Steve McNair and Sahil Kazemi. Now, in this standpoint now, you have a a full-blown situation here of who is Sahil Kazemi? Uh, Why is she there? And now you also have a situation of what the hell happened what's going on. Because now you have a situation where you have these two bodies here. You have you know, Steve McKin- McNair, you know, on the couch, dead. And you also have Sahil Kazemi on the floor in front of him, dead as well. So now you have these two bodies. And at this at this situation now, Wayne Gaddy finally decides to contact the police. So at this point now, the police are involved. And from the standpoint of uh, the investigation that we're going to get into in episode two, we're gonna break down all the nuts and bolts of the case from that standpoint. However, um, from now, at this point of our episode, we want to basically just make sure that we paint the picture of just what the story is and, and kind of how we see the story from our standpoint. Um, so obviously at this point, we're still trying to figure out who Soheel, uh Kazemi is.
2: Right. And- one of the interesting things here, uh, Perez wanted to point out is you know, it's so, you know, like I guess I got I saw some more information about what do you you know, I guess Neely's role here. I mean I guess we could probably talk about a little bit later is like you know the fact that he discovered them and there's a delay and there's only six bucks in Monero's pocket.
0: <laughs> and
1: that's, that's said only at six dollars?
0: Six bucks. And and you know what Novak, that was rare because people, all Steve McNair's friends said that that guy walked around with thousands of dollars on him at, at any given time.
2: Correct, because he was afraid of never. He was afraid of not having enough money. And remember, only have six bucks in his pocket. You know, that's just so weird. You know, it makes me wonder, like, you know, if there was a situation where maybe things are taken from the apartment before the call was made, maybe like a you know like a watch or something disappeared. But uh, you know, it's something that uh, you know we could talk. We could discuss more details
0: later during this investigation. No, most definitely. So, obviously, I mentioned just a second ago that you know Steve McNair is now found in this condo uh, with uh, with Sohail Kazemi. So, for our audience, uh, you know, I'll give you guys a little bit of a snapshot into who this individual is. So, Sohail Kazemi, uh, she was born in Tehran, Iran. At age nine, uh, Sahil's mother was actually murdered uh, during a robbery at their home. So basically as a home invasion that happened in Iran, her mother was killed. Um, So not only did this individual, you know, deal with that type of heartbreak at a young age, she also grew up in a country that was just known for violence and also just basically just a lot of strife. Um, So in the midst of actually dealing with the heartache of her uh, mother being murdered, Uh, Their family was also persecuted uh, because of their religious affiliations. Uh, So, however, what this causes for their family to split up. So her sister moved to Australia. And from what I did in my research, it looked like uh, Sahil actually migrated to Turkey. Uh, So with that being said, she was basically separated from her, you know, her sister's her family had all this you know, internal you know, division in it just because of everything that happened with her mother. Uh, and finally, after many years of living in Turkey, uh, Sahil actually moved to Jacksonville, Florida. Uh, so basically she was an Iranian uh, refugee at that time of her life. The thing that I thought was interesting about her background was that she was actually trilingual. So she spoke English, Farsi, and Turkish. Uh, the thing that made it tough for her, though, coming to the United States is when she was in high school, a lot of the kids, you know, used to make fun of her. They, you know, kind of like ridiculed her because of her background and her ethnic and exotic look. Um, She wasn't really long for high school. She ended up dropping out of high school at 16 and she ended up dating some uh, guy at at her school. And then they moved together to Nashville at the age of 16. Uh, So at this point, uh, now we understand a little bit more about Sahil's you know life and know how her, her journey and then how she ended up you know getting to to Nashville.
2: So what happened here is she's in Nashville and she as, as Prez mentioned she dropped out of high school she struggled with making friends. she started dating the guy they moved to Nashville. she started working as a waitress at David Buster's and you know she met, uh, she met me in December of 2008. I guess while he was at David Busters, you know, they kind of hit it off. She had a, you know, a very exotic look about her, and you know, from what I gathered, doing a little bit of investigative work here, is she kind of like a lot of athletes, a lot of businessmen gravitated toward her because, uh, you know, it's one of those things where she she looked like some, she looked like she was, she's really different look from what they expect every day. She was one of those, one of those girls, sort of an it girl that became it girl by accident. You know, she wasn't like one of those people that, you know, uh, she, she was one of those people that pretty much that was beautiful from day one. So she became something very attractive. She became a high commodity in that area and she dated a few other athletes, you know, besides, you know, besides McNair in this situation. So they, you know, they, Struck up their relationship, you know, they got together, you know, they were, you know, they did vacations, they did trips and everything together. I mean, they were very close. And, you know, and this is the fact that her boyfriend, she moved to Nashville, still in the area. So, (laughs) and she kind of confided him a bit about things that were going on with me there. So it was a weird situation where, you know, you could, uh, you could you could be with Minera, that Manera was dating other people. She was dating other people. So I mean, you know, she just was uh, she was all around. This, uh, I was all around community property. But you know, she <laughs> she, de- she 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 de- she definitely uh, was a hardworking person in the community. The best way to describe it.
1: Damn. Now, pr- hey, now, no, uh, Novak, let me ask you something. Now, I know she was dating this boy. Uh, she was she left with this boy named Keith. Keith yeah. Northley. Okay, they was they, they was dating for four years. Now, did they say what happened? What why they break up or, or it's just, well, you, you they just they just fell
0: apart. High school put two love. put two put two and two together. High school love, and he was broke. He was an aspiring rapper.
1: Oh, okay, yeah. okay. So he wasn't he wasn't coming. Okay, so she couldn't do nothing with him.
0: No. no. She, no, because you got to think about it, like like Novair brought up. So she's got this job at David Buster's, and you have these uh, rich athletes that are coming in there with their friends and family, they're spending all this money. So she's probably seeing that, and I think that she was attracted to that type of lifestyle, just in my opinion. Mm, mm, no, no yeah. your
2: opinion is right there. I mean, I think she's yeah. attracted to that lifestyle because if somebody comes in there with a big tip <laughs> and they leave it for her, and she's hey, like, oh, she goes, oh, my doing. God, there might be more to this tip. Let me figure out where it goes right. at this point. And that's what she did. I mean, because she's linked to a lot of athletes. I mean, it's like, you know, McNair was just the, uh, he was the primary sponsor in this situation. Okay. And, you know, the messed up thing about it, if you, you, you look at, you look at the funny part, the funny sad thing about the situation is that this is somebody who, like, as Fred mentioned, grew up with a lot of anxiety, a lot of hardship, and she's doing her best not to live like that anymore. She's trying to, she's trying mm-hmm. to go from nothing to something real quick. And she saw McNair as like the the right out because you know there might be other NFL players, but this guy had more money. He's got to have more prestige in the community. That's the one you want. She could have Vince Young or whoever else in this situation, but she wanted this one.
1: Yeah, because McNair, McNair, the dude, that's it. He, he's the man. Mm-hmm. Tennessee and stuff like that. Hey, everybody know McNair. People want to be like McNair. And like I said, and she she's only twenty, and she came from. Like you say, a, a life full of tragedies and, and heartache and pain and suffering and stuff like that. That's what she's seen and used to in third world countries and stuff like that. So now she over here, oh man, life's good over here. She's got to catch her one. And she just, you know, that term <laughs> you know, saying that term saber hole, you know say. So not calling her that, but you know, it's a term that, you know, cash used, not me. But, you know, cash use, you know what I'm saying, when they see female struggle and stuff like that need needs needs protection, needs some help out and stuff. So Man, so we see what what's going on, you know. What I'm saying girl working Dave and bus, you know it's funny. Well, let's say It's funny, but cats going like to Dave and buses like that. Athletes bringing the family. Dave and I mean, it's cool for me. I'm a regular dude, you know. So I guess why well, I haven't been the one in Tennessee. Maybe they get more off to the one here. I don't know.
2: The bigger menu. So <laughs> oh,
1: <laughs> more, more
2: catfish and burgers. More, more cat. Okay. So we will talk about
1: what, uh, hey look, uh, none but good things, uh, families, uh, I'm sorry, neighborhoods and and friends said about uh, Kazemi. Uh, Her neighbor said that she is a very friendly and loving, you know, fun loving uh, woman. Though she can be a little naive at times, Uh, okay. I think we all have at some point. But to her friends, she is known, known as Jenny. Her manager, Tony, said that she is a workaholic, a solid worker, high energy, very bubbly, a very bubbly personality. Um, some of her friends, uh, co-workers said that she's a very pretty girl with a beautiful smile, you know, just light up the room. And she's just a, a joy to be around with. So, man, uh, according to the bosses and neighbors and 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 friends and stuff, she seemed like, seemed like a cool girl, you know. So obviously we know something was you know sometime you can put that wall up and be a facade or something, but I mean i mean to to them she said you know a lot of people think you know that she's real real cool, real bubbly, but just you know and they never say a little naive at times, so I mean she's twenty yeah she ain't she ain't scratched the surface yet, but she has been through some things, but man, so that's all with that.
0: Yeah, the one thing I was going to touch on too, because Novak, and I think you even brought it up too, to a to to a small degree, is just in the sense that when you look at, at uh, Sahil, so she was very popular amongst customers at that at that Dave and Buster's. Uh, she was known for basically being very outgoing. I think they said she was actually one of the, the better servers that they had there at that restaurant. Um, oh yeah. Yes. The thing, yes, oh, the, yeah. the, the, the thing mm-hmm. that I wanted to to touch on uh, when it just comes to this situation is the fact that. Yes, you know, McNair did have uh, an inappropriate relationship out of his marriage. Um, Also wanted to 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 touch on the fact that days leading into basically these two individuals uh, coming up dead is the fact that, and I'm sure you guys probably saw this in your research Mm -hmm. as well, uh, Kazemi was actually pulled over for a DUI. And uh, Steve and also his uh, personal chef uh, was in the car with her when the cops pulled her over. Um, So with that being said, in that situation, uh, McNair actually didn't get out of the car to help her in that situation. Uh, He actually, him and the chef, they got into a cab, and they actually left the scene because they didn't want any parts of that situation. I mean, he's a high-profile athlete. This isn't his wife. You know, there's a lot of different things that in that situation that, you know, aren't, you know, on the up and up for him. Um, He actually did later on actually bail her out of jail. Um, But that situation, when I – did my research. I thought, wow. So the girl had the DUI. Uh, basically, she had to be bailed out of jail, and on top of that, she was dealing with financial issues. Uh, she, her roommate, was actually in the process of moving out, which was basically going to stick her with the entire uh, rent payment for their uh, for their ha- their apartment. On top of that, McNair had leased uh, a Cadillac Escalade for her, which had like a seven or eight hundred dollar a month car note. On top of the fact that Jenny's or Sahil's uh, old car that she tried to give to her friend, the friend had to give the car back to Sahil because she couldn't afford that payment. So now you have a situation where the girl that has to now pay for rent. She has two car payments and she's doing all this on a David Buster's uh, salary. I don't, I don't care how cool you are as a server. Uh, that ain't going to cut it.
1: No, it ain't. Uh,
2: you got to do more than serve, serve drinks and burgers at that point. To pay that to pay that. I mean, financially, she was dead in the water. If you want um, think about it, I mean, there's
0: no way she can maintain that lifestyle. Nope, not at all. Yeah, I mean,
1: you messed up because so when you look at all this and piece it together, you see, man, you know, yeah, exactly. When you pick when you piece it together and stuff, it as far as her doing it. It's like wow. Okay, like you say, like you say, Perez, uh, McNair left her when she got popped for that DUI. She got her her her, her, her what's her name her her, her partner of them leaving uh, left her with the whole whole rent for the apartment building. I think it was like a thousand bucks a month. She got you know take making payments when they escalated that McNair. I mean, damn it. I mean, you could have bought. You had to be buy a. I ask her. You could have bought us something and just paid for it. But, all right, okay, all right.
0: just where the kids, You know, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <I'm, laughs> but, but, hey, but, right. hey but real, but real quick on that, Jules, uh, what they said is he offered to actually buy it for her. She wanted to pay for it on her own. And I think that was to her own detriment. Oh. Hmm. Uh, yeah, if you lay down
2: yeah. like that, you need to get up right. You got to stand up in order. <laughs> you know, that's how I feel about mm-hmm. it.
1: Yeah. Okay. So she wanted she she want to pay for this okay so she got some, you know all right so she wanted to pay for this 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 car she had to pay for apartment building, her her girl her partner left, she working at David Buster. I don't know how much they make but I don't say it's I don't think it's much, uh, including tips so you got like Novak said you got to, you know do some extra things to make some big tips now, and also don't forget now, right now don't forget now she ended up uh, knowing about you. Know, the other woman leaving the condo seen the other woman leaving the condo uh her uh mcnair had
0: now uh, you talking about leah
1: yeah mm-hmm. so this is a woman scoring and you know what they say about women scoring now <sighs> you better stay away from her I, you know that's all i'm gonna say but that's how I've, i think she had a, she had a, she had a, she snapped i know we've seen the episodes uh uh, the show snap and stuff, and that's what happened. Me personally, she she just snapped. She couldn't take it. Like I say, for all that, for up, for up for upkeep, and her upbringing and where she come from until now, you know. Uh, I me personally, after all that, she just, she just she just she just she just had it. Now people, I believe her nephew said that she had behavior issues. Of what I've read, and then also people in their job noticed a, a change in her. And I, I, like I say, I've been with, I've been on the job and stuff and I know people personally that committed suicide. And if I had the chance to go back and, and help, I would if I had known. You know, that's why it's important that when you see somebody going through some or, or their behavior change, it's best to see what's going on because you never know what's in that person's life. So I just, uh, when they see that, you know, at work, when they see her, her mood change, because now, because remember now, when I told you, what we all said, she had a bubbly personality. Now it's the pressure of life and struggles and stuff and not really, this dude not really saying what he gonna do, what he said he was gonna do. This man wasn't gonna leave his wife. You know no, what I'm saying? Not, he, 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 not at all. He, no, no. So, me personally, that's why I think all that contributed to, that's the contributing factor of, 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 of what happened.
0: And, and also just not to uh, forget the financial uh, anxiety that she was going mm-hmm. through. I mean, there's a lot of things there.
2: You're right. I mean, you know, in the history of relationships like that, nobody's ever left a wife with a sad chick, you know, in that situation. I mean, she's 20. You know, he literally, you know, he almost had kids that age, if you think about it. You know, so, you know if you think not too much younger, not too much younger than her, I think the, re- the reason I think her motive for creating this crime, her motive for like basically this crime, there's two things. One, there's financial issues. Um, I think two, she was embarrassed. That embarrassment goes to the DUI situation being left there. I mean, I think he bailed her out because she, she probably kept calling him. Like, you know, you got to help me out here. You got to get me out of here and stuff like that. And I think that's what happened pretty much in a nutshell. So I think that you know he didn't want to do it because he didn't want to be associated, and she's probably thinking herself, oh my God, he's not going to leave his wife, and I think that's what went down pretty much. And then also the embarrassment of knowing that he was screwing another woman, and she saw it, so she's out there sitting in the bushes or in her car, what in the escalate, watching this other woman leave the condo. So I think that you know she put two and two together and said, if I can't have nobody can have him, and I'm going to take myself with him, we're going to be together forever, and I think that's what happened there. You know, she set it up real nice. You know, in that situation, the problem is he was too busy living his life. He didn't notice that somebody running him was loose mentally, and you know that ultimately uh, ultimately turned into this 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 crime we have here right now. But I say embarrassment and finance is the reason
0: is the reason why she committed this crime. And you know, uh, one thing I was going to say uh, on that uh, Novak and and Jules, you even brought it up too. Uh, it, I look at this situation and I do see that there could be motive there on her part, because like you said, the, the all the stars aligned on this situation. So she thinks that she's the only one outside of the wife, which she wasn't. Uh, she's got all these financial issues going on. She had the DUI. And let's just mention the fact that the police reports show text messages that uh, Sahil was sending to McNair asking him to basically transfer thousands of dollars into her bank account and that she was basically having trouble breathing because she was really nervous about all the stuff that was mm-hmm. going on, you know, right. with her financial situation. Mm-hmm. Not to mention one of her friends mentioned that she only had $32 in her bank account.
2: 26 would have been there when he died.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. And also, I mean, let's think about that too. So we, 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 we briefly touched on the fact that Wayne Neely was the one that discovered those bodies. So he was the one that the bodies. He didn't call the police. He then started calling all these friends of McNair and associates of McNair and then decided to later call the police when Robert Gaddy was with him. Now, my situation is, I wonder, when we have a situation with Neely, did he immediately leave that, depart, that uh, apartment or did he remove anything from that, that apartment? Because at that situation, it just makes me wonder, if McNair was found with $6, as you mentioned, Novak, and he was known to have thousands and thousands of dollars in his pocket. What did this Neely guy do? Did he go rummaging through McNair's pockets? Did he steal things out of the the the, the condo? Those are things that we just really won't ever understand or even know. But I will say this. That part really stuck out to me when I was reading through the police uh, reports and the investigation. Now, when it came to McNeely, the way him and McNair knew each other was – Neely was an employee at a Nashville sporting goods store. And so apparently McNair put in a large order for uniforms for like a little league team. I think that Novak brought that up earlier. And basically McNair came to pick up the the jerseys and uniforms. And Neely was right there to meet him because I'm sure when he saw that there was a large order that was coming in, he figured it was somebody that was probably going to have money. And he probably figured, oh, I want to meet whoever this is. It ended up being Steve McNair. And it apparently, from what friends of Neely said, is that he was a huge like sports fan, and he had like a he almost put these guys on a pedestal. So when he and Steve McNair became friends, it was almost like he idolized Steve. Uh, and basically, he even offered Steve that that place, that condo, as a place for him to relax and get away when he wanted to. So a lot of people don't realize that Steve didn't own that that condo. He actually rented it from Neely. And they said that basically uh, Steve would basically uh, pay the rent directly to Neely. Uh, sometimes they said if, uh, if Steve would forget to pay the rent then Neely would and then Steve would pay him back. But when I think of that type of situation with Neely, I wonder two things. Why did he call the police? Like you mentioned earlier, Novak, and why was his first thought to leave and to start calling up all these different various associates so that, to me, is just a little bit of a troubling situation. So I I do agree with what you guys are saying in regards to uh, Sahil. But I also think that there's a couple things that happen in this case that can also make you kind of wonder of, hmm, what, what's that about? I mean, especially as you look at, you know, Robert Gaddy and his uh, association. I mean –
2: I, I mean, I, I guess, I guess, you, I guess, if you look at it, now, Gaddy, you know, Gaddy basically was, you know, was a teammate and also, also, you know, a friend of McNair. And the fact that you know Neely called him, and it kind of makes it look like right now, to be quite frank with you, is that you know everybody's working together here to get to get this end result right now. Uh, it looks, it looks very fishy. From it looks very fishy to a certain degree. So Gaddy, so Gaddy, you know, made that phone call out, you know, to, to you know, the 911 call, let them know that, you know, they found the two bodies and, you know, there's a homicide and, you know, he's there. But, it, but the one thing about the Gaddy situation is there was an alleged falling out between Gaddy and McNair at some point where they were not as tight as they used to be. And what I honestly think, I think that's a financial fallout, to be honest with you. A lot of times when business partners or teammates fall out, it's over finance. And it makes me wonder right now, because you go back to, like, you know, what was in that apartment, or, you know, the fact that they all got there, you know, the fact that everybody's in this apartment, you know, what got touched, what got removed, what's not there, who paid off what at this point. I mean, financially, like, if you look into, like, this being a crime of finance, you might be able to figure out exactly, you might be able to figure out who did what by following the money at this point. So I think that um, the fact that, you know, this is somebody that was really close to him, And the way he kind of dealt with it's kind of like, I wouldn't say nonchalant, basically. (laughs) But, you know, I wouldn't say it was nonchalant, but he kind of was at peace, if you know what I mean, a little bit quicker than he should be. And then, you know, you also got to look at the fact that, you know, there's there's $13,000 that was missing from Inera's account. And the only person that had access to that account, knew about that account, is Robert (laughs) Getty. You know, somebody else is asking for money, but, you know, she wanted money, you know, Sahil wanted money transferred in, but she didn't have access to it. So, this is somebody that's close to him that knew how to get to the money. And, you know, if 13000 came up missing, there's more money probably missing beyond that. You know, we don't, you know, his wife, the fact that he lived sort of a double life, you know, out there, he had other things going on. I'm quite sure there are other people getting paid money and other people that knew how to get money from McNair at this point. McNair was a golden cow in this situation. I think Gaddy, I think Sahil, I think Neely, I think everybody knew he was money at this point. And even probably other people in the town of Nashville. Now, this is a town where their economy is okay, but not every day a celebrity, a celebrity athlete—I mean, their standard—socialize with the common folks like this. So,
0: I think there's a lot more to it in this situation. No, you—you're definitely right Maybe. about that too. It, it's a lot of characters uh, in this story um, for us to, to you know, to kind of speak on. Um, one thing that I wanted to touch on that we haven't really talked about so far is the fact that the day of the crime itself, uh, Sahil actually purchased a firearm. Jules, did you want to uh, tell our audience a little bit about that? So, Adrian
1: Gilliam, you know, a, a acquaintance of Kazemi, which could uh, possibly be, you know, he wanted more. You know, they've been texting <laughs> and. And, and and they've been texting and, and talking did you, for.
0: Did you say probably or you did? <laughs>
1: well, so you know they've been texting and go and, and talking for for a lot of times and stuff like that, and you know during the course of the you know the course of the investigation, detectives interviewed uh uh, uh Gilliam, you know, like you said, president, she had purchased that uh, firearm from a nine millimeter. At, uh, Uh, a a fact matter of fact uh she only paid she paid a hundred bucks for it um so i want to say Gillum said that you know he purchased firearm for his protection and because his previous residence was burglarized and you know he also said that Gillum also said that the the gun was purchased outside of of uh, Kazemi's uh, place of employment, Dave and Buster's. So, unfortunately, when you know the shooting, they they recovered that pistol, said pistol that that she had purchased from um, from Gilliam With that, since he was a felon, he got you know he got booked and charged for for that, and did and doing. I forgot how many, like twenty four months, I believe, in federal penitentiary for that
0: yeah no he uh basically what ended up happening with him was he was sentenced to two and a half years uh for basically possessing that that gun and also for selling that firearm
1: Mm -hmm. Um, right
0: the the one thing though that about adrian gilliams character is the fact that the guy was caught lying multiple times uh because he initially told the police that he just met her by chance But however, when you look at all of the the text messages and the phone records, they had been texting like at least 50 times a day with each other Mm -hmm. back and forth for weeks, you know, leading up to the murder. So then he finally had to admit that he actually knew her and that he was trying to pursue her. Uh, So he was a character that I thought uh, they didn't really focus on, at least the police, when they were looking into the situation. Because this guy obviously is an ex-convict. He sold this gun to... Kazemi, because his words to the police, he needed the money because he was flat broke, and so that's why he sold the gun to her for 400 bucks. And I guess she told him that she needed the gun for for protection purposes. I was going to ask you guys. So we briefly talked about Keith Northfleet. He was the the boyfriend of Sahil's when she moved from Jacksonville. Tell our audience a little bit more about him, uh, the, the aspiring rapper, the uh, the Slip Shady <laughs> be.
2: You know, they you know, they you know, I was a living boyfriend for almost four years. You know, he he seemed he seemed to be like very okay with the fact that, you know, they probably broke up, it was high school love, they moved to Nashville together. She watches him, you know, they break up, she you know, he watches her date other guys. He kinda of took it in stride pretty much, like, all right, I have my time with her, they're cool with her base, but they still had a relationship that was good enough to the point where so Hill was confiding in him, everything that was going on. So he knew everything that was going on in that situation. So his role, his role in this situation is that he knows more about her innermost thoughts compared to everybody else. You know, the prosecution is trying to create situations where you know, she killed because she didn't have enough money. He knew that she only had he knew that she had twenty five hundred bucks in her bank account, which is really mysterious for somebody that you don't date anymore. You know, he knew a lot about her finances. He also knew, he also knew, he also was able to describe a lot about what she was like as a person at that point. So she was able to, he was able to paint a picture of a happy person. You know, not somebody just totally different than what the media was painting, like this crazy uh, jealous, angry lover slash killer at this point. And, but I think that you know, he his role in the situation is that he's able to tell more insight of who she is. I think that, you know, he knew more about her finances than probably been knew, the person that was giving her the money. And then the fact that I do feel like this living boyfriend was probably getting some money from her. Because I could, you know, I'm not saying he was pimping her, but, <laughs> but I do feel like, you know, he might have been a little bit of driving force behind needing money, if you know what I mean, in that situation.
1: Right, you know, the inspired rapper, you know, I don't know if he's going to be, you know, if he's going to get some money for what he do, I haven't heard none of this stuff. I don't know how good he is and nothing like that. So, but you also forget, now. he also came, uh, uh, forget he worked, worked for, uh, white castles too. Yeah. So it was a, <laughs> <Slatter>. You know, <laughs> Yeah. So it's, yeah, it's like, yeah, slider. you know, what you, what you crave and stuff. And he wants well, to get back. He, he wants to get back with her. You know, it was, it, you know, he, he was trying to, I mean, you've been with somebody for four years. You brought her from, you know, from, from the last location to, to here break up. Cause you know, she ended up getting into some things and stuff like that. You know, he still wanted, still wanted to be with her. So he's still texting her and calling her, but she will also confided in him and talk to him too and tell him how, you know, McNair wasn't, you know, he wasn't a good person and this and that. And, uh, that he'd been lying the whole time, you know, so.
0: Yeah. And also too, uh, this, this guy, he had to talk her out of she was going to uh, basically confront uh, Steve's wife. And she told this to Northfleet, and Northfleet said, no, nah, that's, that's not, don't do that. You know, don't, don't, don't do all that. So he kind of tried to be the voice of reason, but at the same time, he also had a weird uh, track. I don't know if you guys saw this online. He had a soundtrack, a sound, uh, what do you call that? SoundCloud. He had a SoundCloud uh, music track where he almost kind of was like threatening the, to send someone to a closed casket. And I thought that that was something that the police probably could have looked into a little bit more as well because while he didn't mention McNair's name specifically, he did make a, a, a basically mentioned to kind of like that situation with his girlfriend and, and his ex-girlfriend and that kind of stuff. So I think, either this guy was just basically trying to use the situation to make money or, you know, he might've had something to do with it. I, I don't know.
1: Yeah, I think, you know, I think it was just something to talk about try to make some money because he was working at the time when this stuff was, when, when this, when this happened, I believe I read.
0: But he also admitted that he actually drove past the condo a couple of times that, that night too. Cause he was like looking okay. for her. So but I don't okay. I don't I think you're right. I don't think he may have had anything to do with it. But I think the police could have maybe looked into that, you know, a mm-hmm. little bit further. And that's the thing is, when you look at a lot of these different people that we're bringing up, there's a lot of people that we could say, hmm, did that person have motive? You know, what was that person's role in this situation? I mean,
2: his motive in that situation would be to instigate it to the point you get her back. You know what I mean? I think that's where his motive would be. Like, maybe I get her back if, you know, if she goes this direction. I think that's part of the issue there.
0: Yep. No, exactly. Exactly correct. The last person I wanted to touch on real quick was that Casey Moreland. Uh, He was somebody that I was looking at in some of the police files where he was also another individual that Neely ended up calling up. And so Casey Moreland, he's a judge uh, from Tennessee. He's actually been disbarred. Uh, this guy's a, a fucking scumbag. Uh, he basically was using his position of influence to basically force women to basically have sex with him and in return, he would basically give them favorable sentences. and in some cases he would overturn uh, different charges that would be against him. He's also been uh, basically found guilty of like stealing taxpayer money and just all around just not being a good guy. So corruption, uh, basically skimming money from uh, drug drug court clients. I mean, anywhere where he could get some sort of a financial gain, this guy was all about it. But it's interesting to me that Neely contacted this guy around the time that he made all those other phone calls uh, when he discovered the bodies. And the police saw that there were two separate calls that were made between the two of them. And the calls were about two to three minutes in duration. So that just always kind of just was weird to me in the sense of, were you calling this guy as a friend just because you were freaking out and you wanted someone to chat about the situation? Or were you reaching out to this guy to get advice? He was reaching out to settle up a debt. <laughs> That's what that was. He owed just got money.
2: And I think that I really honestly think that something was taken out of there. And, you know, when you call people, you call nefarious characters like that, what you're doing most likely is letting them know that what's happened, oh, this has went down in that situation, I think uh, I owe you something, I get you. And I think that's probably what went on during that call. He was selling debt. That, I mean, you call somebody that, you know, I saw the Casey Moreland stuff all around the internet and looked at my notes. And I go like, well, this is a very interesting friend for somebody to have that only does sports memorabilia. But remember, people that do sports memorabilia have gambling problems, most of nine out of 10 times. And i tell you why, because when, you, when you're buying baseball cards, man, you're gambling. You're hoping to God that that $10,000 box is going to bring you some money back, you know, in that situation. You're also hoping that when you get autographed autograph to somebody, that he's going to blow up. That's a gamble. It's just more controlled uh, gambling opposed to going to a casino. You know, sports memorabilia, baseball cards and stuff like that, that's a huge that's a huge stake. You might buy this stuff. It might, not, it might not materialize to much of anything. If the person, you know, like you buy a LeBron James card. If he doesn't blow up, you know, we obviously know he blew up. You know, you're basically gonna make some money. If he doesn't, if he becomes Penny Hardaway, then your investment sucks at this point.
1: No, you uh, know what? I, it's like pres, like you guys were saying, man. There's so much stuff to this. I, it's so many angles you can look at. Look at this. A lot of twists and turns and unknowns and things are missing and calling judges like who? You, you kind of wrap you. You kind of you try to think and say like, who would call a judge to see what's, what to do or actually judge them instead of calling the police. You know, I know nearly, nearly he's late, like mid to late 50s and and according to reports said he had panic and didn't know what to do. And you know, he admitted to touching the shell casing and stuff, maybe he touched the shell case and thought maybe it should I call the judge, see, am I okay? I. I, you know, okay, I don't, I don't know what kind of sense that make, but, you know, so then then Gaddy, you know, he ended up calling a few other people, they called Gaddy, nearly went outside, you know, met Gaddy outside, you know, they both came in, now the report said that when Gaddy made the 911 call, he had to go outside and ask people what's the address, he was all destruct, so I, you know, this thing, it got a lot of a lot of side pieces to this thing, and you're like, okay, now is this a cover up, or was this actually a murder suicide? And that's why it's good that we're talking about this to you know, talking about this on this podcast,
0: exactly. Because I think that the lazy narrative would be just to basically say, oh, Sahil did it, you know, she 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 was a lover scorn Because you also have a situation where you have this Nashville police department that has been notorious for corruption. Uh, And they basically, their murder investigations haven't always been on the up and up. And so as we look at that, we see that Vincent Hill, over the years, he's been very vocal about the fact that he believes that this was not an open-shut case for murder-suicide. Jules, can you basically just give the audience a quick uh, background on Vincent Hill? So Vince was born in in Germany. Okay, Vince.
1: Uh, He grew up in a military family. Uh, Vincent studied criminal justice for several colleges across the country because, uh, you know, he was, you know, military kid, you know, he had to move around, you know. Um, after leaving the Army in 2002, Vincent joined the Nashville Police Department, where he served for four years. Uh, Vincent spoke to a local Nashville news station about the the consistency of the, the narrative of the police department. You know, this led to... a multiple appearances of social media outlets, you know, dates, you know, like daytime, uh, Dateline, NBC and stuff. Vincent wrote a couple books. His first book was playbook of, of to, a playbook to a murder and follow book incomplete Pass. I think he was a big fan of, uh, of Steve McNair too, or football in general. He also, Vince also enrolled in Broadway school. That's nice. In Atlanta, he appeared on, you know, more uh, news station, HLNC and then Fox News. So, you know, he, he, you know, try to get his name out there and stuff. Vincent loved to, he didn't even get, you know, he loved to run and hike and all that stuff. So, you know, he's, you know, like I said, former police department, former police officer. He spent four years on the department. So, so he then transition to, to, to more news, news, news stuff.
2: Right. And then, uh, you no, know, they're going on the hill thoughts on the on the case right now. Yeah, he brought up some good points. Like, you know, one of the points pretty much that you know he was going back and forth about was that a lot of people didn't know that Steve, Steve Benner is a sworn police officer uh, for Greenville, Mississippi Police Department. So <laughs> didn't so, know that. Wow, yeah, didn't know Steve, that. That's yeah, good to know. Yeah, so Steve Benner basically had some. uh some law enforcement background, you know, had law enforcement background, you know, a lot of people didn't know that. And so he basically, you know, he never, he, he kept a Glock on him all the time. Uh, and, you know, most people that have guns keep guns with an arm length, right? And if he's in a relationship with somebody, she knows where that gun is at all times, right? So if Sahil was always around him and she knows, excuse me, that he carries a Glock, then why would she go out and buy a gun? That's one of the things that he'll – that's one of the things that he'll – that's one of the narratives that he'll always be painting when he's looking into this case. He goes, if a guy has a gun and he's in such a relationship with somebody, then you go to yourself, like, why would she use that gun? Why would she not use his Glock in that situation in order to kill him? You know, that's, that's one thing. The other thing is the way he was shot, two shots to the temple is the execution. And, you know, it's hard to um, – <laughs> It's hard, you know, it's hard to, uh, I I guess, when you think about the gun ownership thing and you think about, uh, you know, you think about, you know, Sahil and the fact that she had easy access to something rather than buying something. That's that's the things that make me really think about this case a little bit differently.
0: Also too, just to piggyback off of where uh, Jules, uh, you know, kind of left off, Vincent Hill, he was a former Nashville cop. So he has a lot of insight into how they do things there. And he was really convinced that there was more to the story than what we've all been told. Um, And one of the things that you did bring up, uh, Jules, was the fact that Hill does have a little bit of an iffy past of his own. And a lot of people question his motivations behind why he's basically going forward and and basically doing a lot of stuff that he's doing to bring awareness to the case. Because he's kind of profited off of this death of uh, McNair and Kazemi himself. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, because you got to think about it. This case has actually kept his name in the limelight for the last decade. Yeah, kept him relevant. hmm hmm But the one thing that I will say is that, you know, and Novak brought up a really good point about the fact that uh, Steve McNair was a sworn officer. And he always carried a gun on him. So this is the situation it doesn't really add up as the fact that why she would buy a gun when basically she probably knew where his gun was at. And it was on him probably at the time when, you know, when he passed away. Uh, A lot of people also think that uh, the uh, police made multiple errors uh, within the investigation. And that's something we're definitely going to touch on on our next episode that we're going to release next week. Uh, Just because when you think about this case, A lot of the the characters and a lot of the individuals that we brought up, these people have alibis that don't all the way add up. They don't match. So definitely stay tuned for the next episode because we're definitely going to, you know, pull back the curtain on all of the specifics uh, surrounding this case. And then from there, our audience, you guys can decide, you know, what you think. Uh, You know, without further ado, I'm going to kick over uh, to our last segment, the curtain call to, to Novak.
2: This curtain call, uh, we want to make an announcement. The last dance contest winner uh, announcement, we're going to make that. Uh, we want to quickly announce the winner of the last dance contest. We would like to thank all the listeners that have participated and submitted responses. This curtain call goes out to Twitter follower at KimmyJ42. This while I'm pulling back uh, curtain podcast listener is the winner of the, of the, of the winner contest and we'll receive a Michael Jordan replica. Uh, retirement banner. Congrats on winning the contest, and we will be in contact with you to get your information to send out the banner this upcoming week. Uh, listeners, be on the lookout for future pulling back the curtain contests.
0: Jules, hit us with that last thought, man.
1: Well, I just want to, you know, people, to uh, please uh, be sure to tune in next week for part two of the true crime series on the murder of Steve McNair. On part two, we'll be pulling back the curtain on the on the murder investigation of this case. So please tune in, Chris.
0: Thanks. As always, the Pulling Back the Curtain podcast is sponsored by Sumato Coffee. You can learn more about Sumato Coffee at sumatocoffee.com. Please use code BALLERSCOFFEE to receive 25% 25 off of your order. And as always, we appreciate your support of the podcast. We're the Pulling Back the Curtain podcast. You can find this podcast on all areas where you can find podcasts on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and iHeartRadio. We're the Pulling Back the Curtain Podcast. Peace. They won't
1: leave in the night. I've no fear that they might.